during my early teen years, I had a couple of friends who worked part-time at a local Catholic church. We attended the same school and enjoyed playing baseball together. One day I paid them a visit while they were working. Much to my surprise, I learned that their job yielded them two unsavory benefits while employed in what would seem to be a wholesome and upright environment. First, they conspired that one of them would stand guard to make sure that no one was around while the other stole money from the box labeled for the poor. The second diabolical practice consisted of stealing holy water. Yes, holy water. That would later be used to fill up their bong. A bong was an apparatus that was used to smoke marijuana. So I asked them because I was so stunned that they would do this. Why in the world would you steal holy water to fill your bong. And they looked at me as serious as could be. And they said, so that we can have a holy high. <laughs> I thought, that's a new one for you. How could such a sterile work location become a place of robbery and sacrilege? It turns out that my two school-aged chums didn't know anything about the fear of the Lord so here's the focus question before we dive into Revelation chapter 15. Why should you learn to fear the Lord? Why should you learn to fear the Lord? I begin reading in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them the wrath of God is complete and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested." After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever." The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we're nearing the end of the tribulation. We've seen seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and here come the seven bowl judgments. 
Father, the wrath of God is powerful and not to be minimized. I pray that we would have even a greater respect for you, that we would truly come to learn to fear you. I ask that you would guide us in our study today. Move our hearts mightily that we might all bow before you on a daily basis, acknowledging how great you are, how holy you are, and that the fear of the Lord would be a theme that we would live by daily. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We have now in verses one and two, the sign, the sign. Familiar Greek words, Kai Adon, introduce this new vision. Actually, we will have two visions given in chapter 15. The first here in verses one through four, and then the second in verses five through eight. John describes another sign, alas, another of the same kind. We saw signs earlier in the book of Revelation. Go back to chapter 12 with me for just a moment. And look at verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. The woman we saw as we studied that text together, coupling that with Genesis 37, is Israel. But now staying in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. There we see the sign pointing to the fiery red dragon, none other than Satan. We learn that from chapter 12 in verse 9. So we've seen other signs, but this one, may I say, is unique. The description back here in chapter 15, verse 1, is great and marvelous. The sign of the woman, Israel, back in chapter 12 is called great. But the vision here is also marvelous. These two words are coupled together only here in verse 1 of chapter 15. And then again in chapter 15 and verse 3. So the vision, the sign, is great and marvelous. And we have seven angels, note the number, having the seven last plagues. I think this would be a great time to take a couple of moments to review. We go way back to chapter 1 of verse 19. John is on the Isle of Patmos, approximately AD 95. And Jesus tells to him that he needs to write. He was to write about three time zones, past, present, and future. The first time zone we saw was Revelation 1, the vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ. The second time zone consists of chapters 2 and 3, seven literal churches in Asia Minor during John's day, and then the things that will take place after this. The future time zone, beginning in Revelation chapter 4 and carrying throughout the book. Now, keep in mind that during the seven years of tribulation, 
that is marked by Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Also from Daniel 9, 24 through 27 with the 70 weeks of Daniel showing a seven year period of time. There would be three series or often as I've described them, waves of judgment. There would be seven seals. Why? Because there in chapter 4 we have God sitting on the throne. A book is in his hand written on both sides. It's called an epistograph. It was rare. And then Jesus Christ in chapter 5 takes that book from the hand of the Almighty and begins to open its seals. Seven seals. And then from that seventh seal would come seven trumpet judgments. And then now here we are coming to the end of the tribulation with seven bowl judgments. That is what is before us. And this is the introduction to those final seven judgments that will be poured out on the earth. Seven angels are mentioned and uh, no surprise to you if I were to ask you how many times are they mentioned in the book of Revelation as a group of seven and the answer is seven times. Seven times. But note that for in them the wrath of God is complete. The word for hot tea is the conjunction could also be translated because being a causal if you will. It not maybe just for this reason but because of. So we have seven angels and because of them the wrath of God is complete. Let's stop and think about this for just a moment. We are going to finish out the seven bowl judgments. That'll take us to the complete destruction of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. Just so you can get a, a taste for what's coming, spring forward to chapter 16 and look at verse 17 from the seventh bowl judgment. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, and notice the words here, it is done. The sense of a completion we have before. So not only from the seventh bowl will come the destruction of Babylon, but then also the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there's a hastening to the end here. Pick it up with me in verse 2, chapter 15. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Does that sound familiar to you? Back in chapter 4 and verse 6, we had a sea of glass like crystal. This one now has a mingling with fire. John Walverd writes a description very well of these two scenes. In both instances, it is obvious that John does not see an ordinary sea because the heavenly hosts stand upon it. The symbolism, however, is rich. The sea is designed to reflect the glory of God. In chapter 4, its description, like unto crystal, speaks of God's holiness. Here, the sea mingled with fire speaks of divine judgment. 
proceeding from God's holiness. This is the context of judgment. God's holiness is now held up as a standard and we see that justice is being enacted. Who are standing there actually on the sea? Notice verse 2. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. And it ends standing on the sea of glass. Let's unpack this. Those who have the victory over the beast. That's the tribulation martyrs. Individuals who have believed on Christ as a result of either the witness of the 144,000 or the two witnesses or the angel preaching the everlasting gospel or from those that came to Christ from those witnesses. They have victory over the beast. Notice as well over his image. That's the abomination of desolation. Back in chapter 13 we saw with the false prophet motivating the people to create an idol perhaps showing the very likeness of the Antichrist, but that idol comes to life. Jesus spoke about this as well as the book of Daniel. And then also the victory is over the mark and over the number of his name. These individuals didn't capitulate. They didn't bow down to the Antichrist and receive the number 666. And now what is their posture? In other words... What do we see about how they are positioned? They are standing on the sea of glass. It's a posture of victory. How did they gain this victory? Go back to chapter 12 just to refresh your memory. And look at verse 11. After Satan is thrust out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation... He ratchets up the persecution of the just. It says in 12.11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So now, the victorious ones are standing on the sea of glass described as having harps of God. Symbolism showing their victory and the worship that they'll be able to participate in before God and the Lamb. Having harps of God. We saw that the 24 elders representing the church back in chapter 5 and verse 8 have harps. And then the heavenly singers in Revelation 14 verse 2. The tribulation martyrs now will join in the worship. How exciting is that? Now we transition from the sign in verses 1 and 2 to the songs. The songs in verses 3 through 4. These victors sing two songs. Look at verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Note. There are two separate songs described here. The definite article, the, appears before the Song of Moses, right? And then also again, it's the Song of the Lamb. Two separate songs. 
And uh, we will see that there is one theme, though. Let's think about the golden oldies. <laughs> um, Moses had two songs from the Old Testament. The first, Exodus 15. After the Israelites passed through the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies conquered, comes the song. So we have the song of Moses, Exodus 15. But there's a second song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is a song about God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people, Israel. Now, I believe it's the first song that's primarily in view here because it's a song of victory. And the description of those who have defeated the wiles of the devil and have not submitted to the Antichrist are described in the chapter before us. So, the song of the Lamb corresponds now also to the song of Moses because the Lamb has victory over the dragon. Two songs, one theme, victory. Victory. The sign is called great and marvelous. Remember back in verse 1? But now we have great and marvelous are your works. Observe that these songs are directed to God. We should sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. From back in Exodus chapter 15, I want you to see here and consider the works of God. Great and marvelous are your works. Listen to Psalm 111, verse 2. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. Have you considered the works of God in creation? As the psalmist talks about the sun and the moon in Psalm 19. Have you considered the constellation, the stars? Have you considered people and that there are over 7 billion of us, no two exactly alike? No two people have exact DNA. That's extraordinary. And when you look at the sea, you consider the mountains. When you look at all these things, we know it's come from the master's hand. And we ought to marvel at the works of the Lord. Let's consider who we are worshiping. It's Lord God Almighty. Uh, Lord God is a common designation for God the Father from the Old Testament. God the Father from the Old Testament. And I just want to throw this in at no extra charge. It's so very intriguing to me that when you study the first couple chapters of Genesis, it speaks often about the Lord God. But then when Satan slithers up to the woman and he questions the authority of the Lord God. He leaves out the word Lord. Has God indeed said? He wanted them to move toward a generic God. A God of their own making. Because there in Genesis 3.5. He basically says God's holding off on you. He's holding back. You can be like God's. How dangerous. Put the two words together. Lord God. And then he is also the Almighty. Ten times the word Almighty 
surfaces from the Greek New Testament nine times in the book of Revelation from God the Father. And in Revelation 21, 22, and let's go there together. Revelation chapter 21, 22, we'll see that Lord God Almighty, or the Almighty, is distinguished from the Son. 21, 22. But I saw no temple in it. That's the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty, see that's the Father, and the Lamb are its temple. Interesting, just to make the distinction between the two. And by the way, the word Almighty means to hold or have strength over all. So when God is designated the Almighty, he holds or has strength over everything. In other words, he sustains the universe by the power of his might. That's exactly who he is. He holds all things together. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Way back in the Old Testament, fifth book of the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy. And uh, let's look at verses three through four. Just picking up on the second song of Moses. Remember I mentioned Exodus 15 earlier. Here's the second song, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And look at verses three and four with me. Please remember the Israelites now are preparing to go into the promised land. The former generation has passed away. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. All those 20 and above who were given to unbelief. Now Moses is preparing that younger generation to be obedient now he is describing through song the greatness of his God. And this is what he says. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. See who he is. Ascribe greatness to our God. I love the word ascribe. You don't give God greatness technically speaking. He's already great. We just acknowledge the greatness that he has. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Yes, it is. For all his ways, and see here's the connection, are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. In Psalm 22, verse 28, this is what the psalmist writes, 22:28. For the kingdom, and notice the singular there, perhaps alluding to that future kingdom. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Exactly. Because when he comes back, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of our Lord. Charles Ryrie pens, this kingship is about to be exercised for the setting up of the kingdom on the earth is imminent. In other words, it can happen at any time. And back here in Revelation 15, consider this awesome question in verse 4. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Uh, the rhetorical question, so you don't technically have to answer this, you already know the answer, has the ume construction, it's emphatic negation. I remember our seminary professor explaining that this could actually be translated, who would 
ever conceive of not fearing you. Everybody should fear you. How about a couple of questions from Exodus 15 after God had done great things for the Israelites to bring them out of Egypt. Here's some of the words to the song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? No one. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? It's intriguing because see, in the book of Exodus, the song comes after the victory. God enacts 10 judgments, 10 plagues on Egypt. Then he extricates, he sets free the Israelites, he parts the sea and wipes out the Egyptian army. Then comes the song. But now we have the song here, two songs, in Revelation chapter 15 before those final judgments. What do we continue to see in verse 4 of chapter 15? For you alone are holy. Theme of the scripture, God's holiness. In Leviticus 11.44, Be ye holy, says the King James Version, for I am holy. And then in 1 Peter 1.15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Notice what he says in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So God alone is holy. That's why we should fear him. For all nations shall come and worship before you. We'll see more of this in Revelation 20 through 22. For your judgments have been manifested. The implication, your righteous judgments. So we've looked now at the first vision Time for vision number two of chapter 15. And we have the seven angels in verses five through eight. The seven angels. After these things, does that sound familiar to you? The metatauta construction. I looked, has the verb of perception, and behold. So what we have is another vision, not that time has moved on chronologically, but another vision is being introduced. And just... Look with me carefully, please, at the wording of verse 5. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. This is the heavenly temple. It is open to let out the seven angels. But I want to point out that it's fascinating to me where the final judgments come from. The testimony here in heaven, but it's in the temple of the tabernacle. Now, when you go back throughout the scriptures, the Ark of the Testimony uh, is another name for the Ark of the Covenant. I find that intriguing, the Ark of the Testimony, because what did you have in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments were housed there. What does the law show? the sinfulness of man, reflects the nature of God and how short we come of God's standards. And all people deserve judgment based upon the very nature of God because they do not stand up, measure up to his perfect standards. And yet, 
from that location in heaven to people, the people will be judged. Because God has given them a standard met only through the Son. See, Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So when we believe in Christ, in essence, we've kept the law. It's the only way you can keep it. And through him, we become the righteousness of God. He imparts his righteousness to us. How extraordinary. But these individuals on the earth shake their fists at the Holy One. And they need to see where their judgment is coming from. They do not measure up to God's standards and don't want Christ. Verse 6. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. So these seven angels mentioned seven times here are carrying the seven last plagues. Their description, they're clothed in pure bright linen and having their chest girded with golden bands. Two participles there, clothed and girded. And they are also used, those same terms, to describe Jesus. Back in chapter 1 in verse 13, the Son of Man. Isn't it interesting that both descriptions come in the context of judgment? The pure bright linen is a description of righteousness. And we'll see this in chapter 19 and verse 8 in the future Verse 7, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Let's take a look just briefly at the word bowl. Uh, It's a word that is uh, used of a shallow bowl or saucer. But they contain something significant. They are full of the wrath of God. God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth through these seven judgments. And observe here that the God who is pouring out these judgments lives forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 10 and verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Yes, it is. The description now in verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Perhaps this is reminiscent of Exodus 19 and 18. Let me read that to you. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. That's a description of the giving of the law. We end verse 8 with these words, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the angels, the seven angels were completed. Somewhat similar to the dedication of the temple back in 1 Kings chapter 8. The glory of God came in and filled the temple and no one could enter. No one can enter heaven's temple at this time summing this all up I can do so I believe with eight words let me give you those eight words fear God because he is holy and righteous let me say that again fear God because he is holy and 
righteous. Remember back in 15.4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? How do you personally experience the fear of the Lord? Then also, how do you pass that fear on to the next generation? Let's get practical. Psalm 145, we'll, we'll close our study together there. Psalm 145. It's the Psalm of David. Come down with me please to verse 3. Again, contemplating how we personally can experience the fear of the Lord. And then communicate that fear to subsequent generations. Psalm 145 and verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is, and I love the term here, cheker from the Hebrew, is unsearchable. We find that same term in Isaiah 40 and verse 28. They're speaking about the everlasting God. And then in Job chapter 9 and verse 10, he does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. So we see here in 145.3, and his greatness is unsearchable. So as you're contemplating, as you're probing the nature of our God, you never come to an end. You never have a full understanding. Notice in verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another. You see how this, do you see how this comes together? We have the obligation to study the works of the Lord. To allow the word of God to impact us so greatly that we have to tell the next generation about his awesomeness. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Notice what the psalmist says here. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Yes. Stop and meditate. Ponder these things. Read and reread and meditate upon Revelation chapter 15. And who shall not fear you? Verse 6. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts. And I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness. And shall sing of your righteousness. You know during... The average human lifespan. The earth will complete 70 trips around the sun. Think about that. Traveling some 41 billion miles. Can I ask you, what will you have imparted to others during this journey? I want to challenge you today to practice the main point. Fear God because he is holy and righteous. Contemplate his ways and then share with those entrusted to your care to contemplate the great works of God so they may fear him too. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Who shall not fear you and give you the glory due your name? I pray that as we are now moving through this book of Revelation, that there is 
a fear of God in our hearts as we have contemplated your work through the seals, the trumpets, and now entering upon the bold judgments. Daily, Lord, may we contemplate your awesomeness and then may we share with those that you have entrusted to our care the wonderful nature, the manifold miracles of our God that they might also learn to fear you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.